Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. Well, this is not only our 30th episode, but it is the first episode of our fifth year bringing you the most fully automated space age communist podcast around. And to mark the occasion, we are returning in this episode to an old theme for this show. That is the politics of technology and space exploration. Our guest for this discussion is Daniel Dudney, Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. In this episode, we will be discussing Professor Dudney's new book, Dark Skies, Space Expansionism, Planetary Geopolitics and the Ends of Humanity. Now, for non-academic audiences, Professor Dudney is not exactly a fan of fully automated space communism, but... He is kind of a big deal when it comes to thinking about ideas like the politics of world order and space exploration. He has published extensively on world political theory and globalization, focusing especially on the environment and nuclear weapons. His book, Bounding Power, Republican Security Theory, From the Polis to the Global Village, uh, published in 2007, received the Book of the Decade Award from the International Studies Association and the Jervis Schroeder Prize from the American Political Science Association. As you'll hear, Professor Dudney and I certainly don't agree about everything, but we agree on one thing for sure. Uh, we have a shared disdain for Silicon Valley boosterism. In this interview, you'll hear me talk with Professor Dudney a bit about his intellectual background and his earlier work on how nuclear weaponry creates the need for world government. Then we get into his current book, where you'll hear him uh, set forth on the disconnect he perceives between the optimism of our space imaginary and the thin record of accomplishments in actually existing space exploration. Part of the problem there, says Dudney, is that we take our cues too much from the realms of science fiction and space futurism, and not enough from science. For me, uh, one of the real accomplishments of the book is that it brings together a rich genealogy of our space imagination, and he does this from an extraordinarily diverse range of sources. Uh, one particularly important name that comes up in this conversation is that of the 19th century space futurist, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, but there are others, and they are all featured and discussed at length in the book. What they all seem to have in common is a tendency to predict a kind of organic destiny of man to expand out into the solar system and beyond, and to engineer and denaturalize everything they see in their path. They also pose a universe ultimately of plenitude, where there will be no need for war, and eventually even a suppression of the human species itself. For Dudney, there's a lot of hubris on display in this kind of discursive material, not least in terms of its naive grasp of the limits of our planet's ecology. Uh, you know, in the book, Dudney evokes um, authors like Kim Stanley Robinson uh, when he uh, writes clauses such as, you know, the turbulent earth and its unruly life. So with this map of our space imaginary set out for us in the book, 
Dudney moves to close his arguments by suggesting a new set of coordinates by which we might imagine the use of space exploration. And as we enter the Astrocene, he notes uh, with some caution that we seem to be stuck uh, with political forms that are archaic and impractical for this task. Our future survival, he contends, will demand the emergence of new kinds of world governmental institutions. And these will preferably be of a democratic nature, but he doesn't rule out something akin to what Marx termed hydraulic despotism. So what exactly is the choice on the table for us here? Uh, is it going to be that we stay within this realm of closure and these archaic forms of interdependency? Or is it going to be something more like the movie Elysium, a kind of a militarized despotism of these mega structures orbiting our planet? Or is there going to be some other option? Well, these are the questions that are going to be preoccupying us in this discussion. And I'm thrilled to have Daniel Dudney on the show. I really hope you enjoy this special program. If you have uh, any questions or if you want to follow up on the show, you're welcome to reach out to us on Twitter at Occupy IR Theory. Uh, we're always there for you for your questions and interested in hearing from you. And of course, if you have a spare moment, please drop us a review on your podcast app of choice. It helps raise the ratings for the show and get the show out to a wider audience. Okay, with all that said, and without any further ado, here is Professor Daniel Dudney. Well, it's a great pleasure to have on the show uh, today uh, Professor Daniel Dudney, uh, the author of a new book, Dark Skies, exploring the question of man's political relationship to the question of space expansion. Now, before we get started today, I was actually trying to remember the first time that I came across Professor Dudney's work. And I think it was actually when I was reading an early piece by Alex Went on the world state. This is, of course, before Alex was famous uh, constructivist. And in that piece, he was discussing a sort of a teleological argument to do with globalization and the inevitability of a world state. And in this piece, he borrows from Professor Dudney to discuss how the spread of nuclear weaponry creates this kind of teleological pressure for a world government. Now, Professor Dudney, can I direct this question to you? You you developed a lot of these ideas in your earlier work. One of those uh, areas, one uh, a book of yours in, in that earlier period was called Bounding Power. So I wonder, just for the audience at home who might not have come across your work before, just as a way of getting started, can I invite you to give a brief uh, recap of your intellectual project to date and how you came to be interested ultimately in what you call space expansionism? Well, Bounding Power uh, is in many ways my most important book. Uh, the title of it is Bounding Power, Republican Security Theory from the Polis to the Global Village. It was published in 2007. And like Wentz's book, uh, it was designated uh, the book of the decade by the International Studies Association. And the main uh, idea in it is captured uh, in the title, 
the double entendre in the title. Uh, this is a reading of Western thought about security, uh, material context, and political order from the Greeks to the contemporary. And the main argument is that as power bounds in the sense of leaps, grows because of technological change, then power must be bound in the sense of restrained uh, in order for security and freedom uh, to uh, be produced. Uh, so bounding power, bounding power. And uh, one of the main claims of the book is that the ideas that we now refer to as realism and liberalism in IR theory uh, had all been uh, formulated earlier, mainly in the idioms of republicanism. The word liberalism and word realism were not actually coined until the 19th century. Uh, and these ideas were present earlier in what I refer to as Republican security theory, uh, an inchoate, uh, but nevertheless very fertile and powerful body of thought uh, that really culminates in the Enlightenment. And um, the key uh, notion here, there's sort of two big takeaways. Uh, this is a reconstruction of Western thought and what has happened uh, since the fragmentation of Republican security theory into realism and liberalism is that the variable that I argue is the most important, which is what I refer to as violence interdependence, the capacity of actors to do harm to one another uh, independent of their uh, relative distribution balance of power. And uh, violence interdependence sits at the center of all of the major arguments uh, in Western thought uh, about security and violence, uh, political order, and uh, in Hobbes, it's in Thucydides. And uh, the main trajectory is that the size of the space within which intense violence interdependence is present has been successively increasing from a city-state size to a nation-state size to a continental size to a global uh, size with the development of nuclear weapons and yeah. ballistic missiles. And uh, this is very much an attack on uh, neorealism, uh, the anarchy problematique, so-called in realist thought, which I argue is a truncated version of what we should be talking about, which is the anarchy interdependence problematique. And the main proposition is that situations of intense violence interdependence, where the actors can readily uh, kill one another, is fundamentally uh, incompatible with anarchy for the present for the achievement of security. If you want to be secure, you have to exit anarchy in situations of intense violence and interdependence. And the book traces this argument being made first for the city-state, then for the nation-state scale, then for the continental in, after the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. and then with figures like Morgenthau and hers and other nuclear one-worldists. Uh, over the uh, 20th century in the wake of the development of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. And the second key takeaway of the book, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, this megarchy, a term that I coined 
to refer to what I argue is a third structural ordering principle. We have in realism and in structural realist theory, you know, very sort of simple uh, dyad spectrum where we have one end uh, anarchy and the other end hierarchy, and then there's various gradations in between. Uh, and what that uh, typology does is it writes out from the ground uh, the achievement uh, and the historical experience of Republican uh, polities at the unit level and the efforts to construct uh, non-hierarchical unit unions uh, at the system level. And so I suggest that IR theory is better equipped if we have a triangular typology where anarchy is at one end of uh, one angle, uh, hierarchy at the other, incorporating the realist ideas, uh, and then negarchy uh, would be uh, at the third. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, there can be uh, intermediate forms between anarchy and negarchy. Uh, and I argue that uh, the early United States, uh, the Philadelphian system, as I refer to it, uh, would be an example of a system level uh, negarchical order. The European Union, to some degree, uh, and in some ways, uh, the Western liberal order uh, among the core liberal democratic states. Mm -hmm. So this is a typology, and you can be at any point on any of these three spectra. Uh, and of course, there's no reason that we're all going to evolve towards negarchy. You can move uh, one way or another on these uh, uh, axes. Uh, and so basically, those are the two uh, key takeaways. And this is part of a more general project uh, that I've had uh, really my entire adult life. I was trained as a political theorist, an undergraduate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in uh, philosophy and political theory, and uh, decided that I was going to try and do uh, what I've been calling world political theory to think about uh, global uh, order uh, and particularly with regard to uh, science and technology. And so my uh, sort of bumper sticker uh, brand is uh, planetary geopolitics and republicanism. Uh, I'm basically making arguments in this space book, but also in my work on nuclear weapons uh, and environment uh, that we're in a situation now because of transformations in technology, all this empowerment, which has occurred, uh, where both uh, hierarchy and anarchy are incompatible uh, with security and political freedom. Mm -hmm. And so the project is to figure out how to exit the anarchy that we have without creating a world state as a hierarchy, uh, but instead to generate a type of Republican union that would take us out of anarchy uh, and, and provide the authoritative capacities to regulate these various uh, super technologies uh, without empowering uh, a center uh, that would be uh, you know, all powerful uh, and oppressive. So negarchy uh, or death uh, <laughs> is my uh, slogan. Okay. Uh, that if within the course of this century, uh, we can't uh, exit anarchy in this direction, uh, there's going to be very dire uh, consequences. Mm -hmm. the, uh, both anar actors in both anarchy and hierarchy uh, are empowered 
in ways that are historically unprecedented, uh, power has bound, and therefore we need to have an architecture of bounding power uh, along this negarchical line in order to achieve security and freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my general project. Yeah. In terms of space, uh, you ask about uh, the genesis of my interest there. Um, my father was an officer in the Air Force, and then he was an executive in a company called Baikal, uh, and their contribution to it all uh, was to make solid rocket fuel. Uh, and I was a big uh, omnivorous science fiction reader uh, as a kid. Uh, one of the most influential books uh, for me uh, was uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Profile of the Future, uh, which is, is still extremely timely. I mean, parts of it are, are clearly not right, we can say now, uh, but it was extremely uh, wide in its gauge. Uh, and so I, I, I've been a scientific technological futurist, uh, thinking about uh, global order in various ways. You know, ever since uh, I was a kid, uh, during the uh, early 1980s, I was a senior researcher at the World Watch Institute in Washington, where I co-authored a book on renewable energy, something I had been working on before that in Cap- on Capitol Hill. I was very young then; this is before I was 30. And uh, at World Watch, I also uh, they had a paper series, uh, and they were a publication. Uh, promotion uh, publicity machine really uh, astoundingly effective in that way. And I did a paper on space called Space, the High Frontier in Perspective, uh, which laid out uh, why the impending weaponization of space uh, with anti-satellite weapons and um, Reagan's SDI, Mm -hmm. Strategic Defense Initiative, so-called Star Wars, uh, was a really bad idea. And uh, in the wake of that, and I was kind of an instant expert, uh, (laughs) uh, I testified at the first hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, on the SDI program and went around and was on TV and went to conferences and stuff. Uh, And I think I was 29 then. And um, very soon, uh, people uh, way beyond my pay grade began to get involved in the issue people like Richard Garwin, eminent scientist, arms mm-hmm. control experts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was really um, marginalized, uh, appropriately so. Uh, <laughs> so I focused next on cooperation in space. And while I was in Washington, I did a master's degree at George Washington University, which was a fabulous experience. Courses on technology, assessment, futures, environment, uh, and space. Uh, and I did a master's thesis under the supervision of Dr. John Logsdon, uh, one of the preeminent uh, space writers of the last half century or so, that was essentially on cooperation in space, parts of which were published by the World Policy Institute. And then I was able, with assistance from people at Princeton, uh, where I was then a uh, graduate student, uh, organized a series of workshops uh, in the Soviet Union and the United States, Washington, Moscow, and uh, gathered together actually a lot of the, the key players uh, in the space domain, uh, many of whom were, were had always been in favor of cooperation in space, 
and, and those conversations, you know, were part of the the larger movement that occurred uh, to culminating in the International Space Station in uh, the uh, Clinton administration in the wake of the uh, Cold War. Uh, and I've never been, aside from that brief period, mm. fully or primarily a space person. It's always been, you know, uh, an extreme uh, interest, but always a side interest. And uh, the book that we're talking about today, yes. Dark Skies, uh, is um, very much uh, shaped by uh, both a general view of scientific technological uh, modernity and its relationship to politics, uh, as well as uh, the nuclear question, mm-hmm. which, of course, has been one of my other main uh, writing projects. I have a perpetually unfinished book manuscript under the title of Pax Atomica, Geopolitics, oh. Arms Control, and Limited Government, That's and I've published title. maybe 15 articles and book chapters on that. Uh, mm. So I'm not a space person, and this book is really an attempt uh, to uh, provide a critical perspective, uh, an assessment uh, on the overall enterprise, past, uh, present, and future, uh, which remarkably uh, no one uh, has done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, maybe I can uh, steer you now into some of the background of the book. Uh, I uh, forgive my methodological turn of phrase here, but I was wondering, you know, could you give us some of the genealogical details of space expansionism itself? Uh, Because you note a few times in the book that there's this disconnect uh, between the kind of um, unbounded optimism of our general space imaginary, which of course comes to us from the realms of science fiction, space futurism. These are topics we can return to in a moment, but you know, this this disconnect between our imaginary and the actual accomplishments of space exploration itself. So what is that disconnect, first of all? Maybe you can flesh that out for us. And then how do we explain this kind of blind and unquestioning faith in the idea that space exploration is ipso facto good? You, uh, multiple times in the text, uh, refer use the term Baconian modernity. Um, and I wonder, is that a key for you in this argument. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. You know, what is maybe is 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 the argument here that there's this kind of line of continuity in terms of the way we think about modernity from, say, the Enlightenment to the likes of Ray Kurzweil and the other futurist singularity theorists today? Is is that the problem that we're trying to flesh out here, or or what is it? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, to go back to the beginning, uh, space expansionism is a term uh, that I, I don't know if I coined it, but I use it uh, to refer to a body of thought uh, that emerges in the late 19th century. And uh, it is uh, in its initial formulations uh, and continues to be uh, intimately intertangled uh, with science fiction. And, uh, you know, Silokovsky, Konstantin Silokovsky, uh, the great Russian uh, rocket engineer and space visionary, really laid out uh, a very uh, ambitious, uh, if skeletal, vision of uh, humanity's inevitable and positive uh, expansion uh, off the planet. And uh, that is, of course, over the course of the 20th century. 
uh, become uh, immensely elaborated, uh, particularly uh, over the last half of the 20th century and beyond. Uh, it's been global, uh, a global network of people uh, who have these views, but it's been, of course, particularly uh, well-developed in the United States, uh, in part because of the uh, immense technological uh, commitment the United States has made in this area. Uh, and when you go back and look at the various people, starting with Silakowski, uh, Werner von Braun, uh, Hermann Oberth, uh, another key figure in Germany, uh, as well as uh, the cosmonauts and astronauts, they almost all say in very strong terms uh, that they got the space bug by reading science fiction, mm -hmm, particularly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Jules Verne and H.G. Uh, Wells. One of the interesting things about uh, space expansionism, as it's held by this global network of uh, advocates who fondly refer to themselves as space cadets now, uh, is that uh, they all acknowledge this link with science fiction. They're all uh, back and forth across that line. But when one looks at science fiction, one sees an enormous uh, preponderance of uh, things going wrong, uh, of dystopian uh, scenarios in one way or another. Right. And uh, when you cross the line into the advocacy, all of these negatives uh, have somehow been filtered out. Mm -hmm. uh, it is only advocated, you know, as a positive uh, vision. Uh, and of course, it's important here, just as an aside note, uh, to distinguish between space exploration, scientific uh, acquisition of knowledge about the cosmos beyond the Earth, uh, which I strongly support, uh, and space colonization, uh, the vision uh, that humans uh, should and are destined uh, to expand their habitat off the planet through the solar system and then ultimately into uh the galaxy uh, itself. Right. It, it really is a cosmic vision mm -hmm. uh, of human expansion. And one of the things that uh, the book does, uh, as you know, is connected to this larger uh, scientific technological imaginary. Right. Uh, I view uh, Francis Bacon, uh, whom I teach, uh, insist that the students all follow and know about, uh, is the real founder of modernity, uh, the scientific method uh, in the new organon, what we would call uh, empirical inductive science, uh, a break from the Aristotelian, uh, more passive and observational uh, approach. Uh, and he claims very boldly uh, that this is going to give us uh, more reliable knowledge, uh, which certainly has turned out to be true. Uh, but he also claims, and this is really in the New Atlantis, where you, which is a work of science fiction uh, mm -hmm. itself, mm. Uh, of technological utopianism of some sort of very odd work, um, never finished, uh, uh, enabling us to read whatever we want to into it. But he lays out the, the claim that this is not simply going to be better knowledge for its own sake but is going to enable uh, humanity to uh, transform uh, its estate, to transform the human condition top to bottom, 
uh, enormously increase wealth, enormously increase power, uh, which over time uh, will take us back to something uh, approximating uh, the Garden of Eden. So from the very beginning of scientific technological modernity, there's been this uh, futurity, this uh, vision of a trajectory and of uh, uh, revolution after revolution after revolution that will eventually take humanity into a situation uh, that will be somewhere between the Garden of Eden Right. Uh, and uh, apotheosis, a sort of transformation uh, into a superior uh, godlike uh, entity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is infused uh, in the space expansionist uh, thinking. Uh, space expansionism uh, is uh, by far the largest in its ambition and its uh, spatial and temporal scope, scientific imaginary uh, of modernity. It basically swallows up uh, everything else, and it is, uh, as you said, uh, relentlessly uh, uh, optimistic. Uh, And so my angle, given all of this, uh, (laughs) is to think about um, the general relationship between technology and uh, politics, that the first half of the Baconian uh, plan better knowledge, uh, more power, uh, has certainly uh, taken place. Uh, And even as we speak in laboratories all over the planet, both in the military, the governments, uh, and and, in capitalism, uh, fevered uh, efforts to advance uh, scientific knowledge for the purpose of technological development are underway. Uh, And, you know, people talk about civilizations as units in world politics, uh, Samuel Huntington, uh, a baneful influence in so many ways, mm-hmm. uh, clash of civilizations, I think is really very uh, misleading. Uh, you know, Sinic and Islamic and, you know, uh, Latin Christendom civilizations. These are at most cultural inflections on what is actually uh, a nearly universal, so hegemonic that it's not even recognized as such, civilization that is committed to uh, this project of improved knowledge mm-hmm. and uh, increased power. Uh, and so te- scientific technological modernity is uh, something that uh, we've committed to, whether intentionally or not, uh, and has enormous uh, momentum. You know, who would question getting new knowledge about science? Uh, And look at this most recent uh, pandemic. Uh, What is our hope? Well, it's the vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. It's that uh, modern uh, biomedical science can and appears to have, uh, you know, come up with a fix for this. So this is an enormously influential uh, way of proceeding. And it is overwhelmingly a humanism in the sense that it does elevate humanity and the betterment of humanity over everything else. All other organisms on the planet are, you know, just really uh, marginalized. Mm. uh, And nature itself is basically viewed as a raw material uh, for uh, this comprehensive 
uh, reconfiguration of nature to advance uh, humanity. Uh, and you know, one of the I talk about this in chapter six. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascinating mm-hmm. uh, the extent to which, really, from the beginning in the nineteenth, late nineteenth century and throughout, space expansionists, the habitat space expansionists, uh, talk about human populations that will uh, in space that will number into you know first the thousands and then the millions and then the billions and then the trillions. Uh, that yes. there's unlimited potential to refabricate cosmic nature yeah. so yeah. as to expand the number of humans uh, and that this is the standard by which everything uh, would be uh, held. Um, so maybe so, um, just to jump in there, but um, I, I want to get to chapter six because it's I think it's one of the best chapters of the book. But before we do that, I just wanted to sort of share with the listener an observation that, um, you know, uh, Professor Dudney has an amazing book here insofar as for me, the, the way, uh, Professor Dudney, you, you extract this kind of futurist ontology from this concatenation of sources it's it's remarkable you know we have um a survey of uh, some science fiction but i mean you you had there's a tension for you between futurism and science fiction maybe you can explore that a little bit more because you touched on it a moment ago but i really just kind of want to touch myself on this idea that you know there's 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 orbiting bodies there's wider earth orbits then there's like the solar system there's these questions of like mega structures you know it, 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 in some ways you can imagine the movie um aurora not aurora um gosh the movie uh, elysium um as as sort of a, 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 a as sort of a, a dark future um projected in your book in, in some ways you know this kind of idea of 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 elite classes taking to orbit, whatever, but that's just really the beginning of it for you. Like it's, it's, it's in the long run, there's, and I mean, by the long run, we mean tens of thousands of years possibly, but you know, there's evolutionary questions about what happens to our species, bifurcating, bifurcating again, you know, so I just wanted to share that with the listeners. It's, it's a, it's a large book. It is a book that really does its homework and extracts from this diverse, futurist literature, um, a, a real sense of the ambition of space expansionism. And I think that's the thing that really um, kind of my eyes got open to uh, reading this book. You mentioned Sokolovsky, uh, sorry, Siolakovsky, I think I pronounced that wrong. He, he was a 19th century Russian space futurist, but there's others, you know, so I guess the question here is, can you talk about your discovery of these scales in these sources? And and, and what was that process like of extracting all of this kind of um, blueprint, as it were, of the space expansionist imaginary? Uh, well, one of the uh, difficulties of writing about this topic, uh, I quickly found, was that uh, there's this immense literature of... Uh, very uneven quality, right? And it is very uh, obviously repetitious, mm. uh, but also there's no uh, kind of order to it. Uh, and so you got all these. Let's do this. Let's do that. No, do this. And so one of the tasks that I uh, undertake in the book 
uh, is to provide a typology of mm-hmm. the arguments that exist uh, on this topic. And uh, the, I characterize these as paradigms or programs, uh, and you can envision them as ladders, uh, different rings of a ladder uh, going up. And by far the most uh, ambitious, uh, I refer to as the Silikovsky programs, the Silikovsky uh, paradigm, and this is the habitat space expansionism. Uh, and virtually anyone who is a space advocate is a uh, Silokovskian. Uh, and uh, virtually none of this has been done. But you see that it has enormous uh, draw. Uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, who I gather at this moment are the two uh, wealthiest people on the planet. Seems like uh, it. Are both total space uh, fanatics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and talk about, you know, millions and billions of people uh, living in space. Uh, Bezos uh, is an undergraduate at Princeton, uh, was uh, a space activist, uh, one of the founders of uh, Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, and uh, studied some with uh, Gerard O'Neill, uh, a Princeton uh, engineer who was very influential uh, in the 1970s. And so the first step is a ladder uh, for the Silikovskins. And um, I distinguish central to the argument is distinguish between uh, Earth orbital space, uh, which we should view as part of the planet, really. I call this the astrosphere, mm-hmm. the part of, of space that's dominated by the Earth's gravitational and magnetic field. Uh, and here the project is to uh, have giant uh, orbiting uh, solar collectors. Uh, imagine a solar collector the size of Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, and then a ring of them uh, in geosynchronous orbit that would collect energy and then beam it down to Earth. Uh, then you would have uh, various uh, resource uh, acquisition from the moon and from asteroids uh, that would be brought back to build uh, further infrastructures. Uh, and then uh, enormous, uh, eventually, free-floating uh, orbital uh, cities. Uh, Bernal had talked about this in the 1920s. Uh, O'Neill uh, and and in the seventies developed this uh, at least the view graph version of this, um, and uh, that's just of course the beginning. As you say, mm. uh, the larger project is uh, the colonization of uh, the planets, and which are quite inhospitable. Uh, and so, while we'll eventually terraform them. Uh, and terraforming is basically geoengineering for mm-hmm. other planets mm-hmm. uh, to manipulate on a planetary mm-hmm. scale the basic geophysical parameters, the atmosphere, the temperature, and so forth, uh, in order to make habitats uh, for humanity. Uh, and, of course, the asteroids play a major role in this uh, as a source of material, uh, both uh, for planetary development, but also just as free-floating uh, cities. And so it's the urbanization. Uh, and then it continues out, you know, the moons of the outer planets. Uh, then uh, we get with Freeman Dyson and others, 
to the uh, Cooper Belt uh, and the uh, Oort Cloud, uh, which is the third zone of the solar system. Uh, Pluto is a, a Cooper right. Belt uh, object, right. and uh, there are uh, we don't have a full inventory of these icy bodies, but uh, there are uh, certainly hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, probably many millions, perhaps into the billions, uh, you know, an enormous number of them spread out over an even larger uh, area of, of space. It's very cold. Everything's frozen. And then there's the Oort cloud, uh, which is a uh, three-dimensional uh, spherical uh, cloud of comet tree material uh, that stretches out uh an appreciable fraction of the distance to the next star. And so wow. there's all of this raw material and the space expansionists say, well, we will over time convert this uh, into uh, habitat. Um, the uh, other part of this story, which is woven in from the very beginning, uh, is the idea that you mentioned of uh, biological alterations of uh, humanity. Mm -hmm. um, it's in Silokoski. Um, you know, it, this is something that people started thinking about almost as soon as Darwin's theory uh, became uh, widely uh, understood uh, and uh, thought about, uh, that you know, humans are the product of this natural evolutionary process. And uh, why would we think that it would stop uh, with the way we are now? And this is, of course, uh, gets into eugenics and then the sort of uh, revival of new eugenics under the label of uh, transhumanism. Uh, and of course, you know, one strand of this thinking focuses on doing this on the earth. Uh, but from Silakovsky, at least on, uh, very strong in Arthur C. Clarke, appears in virtually everybody uh, who has a big argument, there is the assumption that humans are not well-suited. Uh, I call it an assumption. It's a truism that humans are not well-suited to uh, these environments beyond the Earth. And therefore, uh, you can do two things. You can make it more like Earth. Uh, which, of course, is part of the project. But the other uh, path is to uh, alter humans so that they fit in better. Uh, and, of course, with the coming of the knowledge of DNA uh, and the prospect of genetic uh, engineering on the horizon, uh, the argument is typically that we won't have to wait for the slow Darwinian uh, selection uh, process to operate way too slow, uh, we can direct, we can choose. Uh, and so Silokosian space expansionism, habitat space expansionism, has uh, as an integral part of its vision, uh, species radiation, uh, biological term, meaning that there will be uh, descendants of humanity that will have at least our mental capability and presumably at least our technology right. uh, that will be uh, in the solar system uh, and beyond. So there are going to be aliens, uh, but they're not going to come from elsewhere. They're going to come from us. And of course, when one thinks about the 
uh, the extraordinary range of morphologies that we see mm-hmm. uh, in the larger uh, forms of uh, metazoic life on this planet, uh, the, the menu of potential uh, intelligent life forms in their morphology becomes uh, enormous. And I speculate that uh, an insectoid uh, body uh, architecture uh, would likely be appealing uh, in many of these environments. Uh, and so um, we're going to have, if the space expansion is proceed, we're going to have uh, multiple uh, intelligent technology using species in this solar system. And what will happen to humanity then, uh, part of my argument in detail is to think about why this is not likely to favor us, but space expansion is in the Silokovskian vein when confronted with this possibility, will simply say, well, you know, humanity's had its run. Humanity is a bridge species uh, and that there's no reason why we should fetishize uh, humanity or the earth uh, our successor uh, generations will be more capable. They'll be uh, space uh, uh, capable. Uh, and that from the standpoint of life uh, and Earth-originated life, uh, this is a desirable uh, step forward. And, of course, there is then the side uh, argument here uh, about silicon successions, is the language I use uh, we talk, see this, of course, in science fiction, robotics, artificial intelligence, artificial superintelligence, uh, and all along. A strong statement, in fact, in the uh, Clark book I mentioned earlier from the 60s, that, look, humans, uh, based on carbon uh, biology, uh, are just not robust enough, mm-hmm. uh, not uh, resilient enough. Uh, to conquer uh, the, the hospi- inhospitable vastness of space. Uh, and so we'll evolve into computers, uh, digital computers. The silicon succession uh, will be uh, the inevitable path forward. Uh, and while this will result in the extinction of humanity, you know, that's just part of the order of things. That's just uh, the way things happen. And we should embrace this. And so it's, it's interesting that Silokovsky and space expansionism starts with this extreme humanism. Uh, everything is to be subordinated to human uh, on this larger and larger scale. But then as it develops further uh, temporally, technologically, spatially, the human gets dropped out. Uh, humans become the expendable predecessor, and the uh, embrace of the uh, artificial, uh, super uh, intelligent uh, life forms uh, is 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 progress. And so this is the apotheosis. You see, uh, humanity is 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 a stepping stone uh, to uh, technological intelligences. Uh, that will have uh, God-like, many of the attributes of God, um, characteristics, presumably not able to violate the laws of nature and thus the speed of light, but uh, omniscient, uh, effectively omnipotent, 
uh, immortal. You know, you have a part break down, you just replace it. You can reproduce, uh, you know, in an instant. And of course, they think uh, what seven orders of magnitude faster than humans do. Uh, and so there, there's a sector of people on this planet now who not only want to do this in space, but they want to do it on Earth. You know, they don't see an artificial superintelligence as a problem. They see it as this next step in evolution. And they're very impatient, of course, with anyone uh, such as myself, many others, uh, who would say, well, maybe this isn't really a good idea, guys. Uh, maybe uh, the Earth and humanity uh, have a, uh, a value which might be um, worth preserving. Yeah, no, I, I think it's interesting. The uh, very, very long range future projection going on there, you know, like obviously in the nearer term, uh, it just sort of reminds me of, um, as you're talking there about Kim Stanley Robinson's novel, Aurora, where, you know, I think it's sort of a testament to the idea that, you know, despite our imagination of going to the, to the stars, and this is, of course, all part of this, you know, there is no planet B uh, debate. Um, I, Kim Stanley Robinson himself has been writing some pieces and talking about this publicly now the last couple of years where, you know, we, we may we may have to just sort of humble ourselves a little bit and just accept that you know, interstellar travel could be a lot more difficult than we give a credence for. I wanted to, to sort of move on now to perhaps another topic and, and sort of come back to the nearer future, um, because I think one of the most important parts of the book, uh, you know, coming towards the end of it, chapters nine, chapters 10, where you, um, I think in a very interesting way, offer some what we might call geopolitical corrections uh, to the way the space expansionists imagine our future. And of course, in the nearer term, the question is colonization of Earth orbital spaces. And uh, you dub this moment the birth of the Astrocene, I guess, where humanity sort of takes its first um, you know, tentative steps into becoming a space civilization. And uh, I was really interested in your kind of discussion of the sort of political uh, impact of this, the political uh, significance of this. Uh, the opening, so to speak, of the near-Earth orbital frontier. You talk about it as if it's going to require um, a pretty hefty governance regime and also a degree of militarization, something that looks a lot like, and you quote Marx here, hydraulic despotism. So I'm quite interested in that, and maybe you could elaborate it a little bit for us, right? Because in the same breath as you're kind of painting that fearful picture, you're also saying that, uh, you know, kind of paradoxically, while these potentials are there, that at the minute, anyway, we, we haven't achieved the kind of planetary consciousness that would be, need to be in place to put that into, uh, uh, into existence. We're still stuck with closure. We're still stuck with sort of redundant state-based policies, these old archaic institutions, uh, none of which are going to suit the spacefaring moment. So 
that's kind of almost like a saving grace, I think, for you in some ways. So this seems to be kind of a strange choice then that's on the table for us, you know, staying within the realm of these archaic forms of interdependency or achieving that global consciousness, but then sort of producing something that we really don't want to see. So, you know, is there another option other than these two choices or, 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 or how do you see that re resolving itself? Uh, great questions. Um, to go back to the beginning, uh, mm -hmm. the point about uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, I'm a big fan of his work. Uh, I've been reading generationship science fiction ever since I read Robert Heinlein's Orphan of the Sky, which kind of blew my mind. I was probably 10 or 11 at the time. And uh, he's a master. Um, one of the... Uh, questions that hovers over all of this, of course, is feasibility and uh, economic, technological, political, et cetera, feasibilities. And um, there's been obviously an enormous amount uh, of focus on that. Uh, for the advocates, the desirability is unquestioned. And so the project for them becomes overcoming the feasibility difficulties. And uh, I go through and look at the feasibility questions and, um, you know, I try and take a, a, a generous uh, posture here. Um, and I think that many of the engineering infrastructure uh, and so forth uh, are likely uh, to become uh, quite uh, feasible. But one big question mark, and here you're uh, mention of aurora is relevant, is with regard to uh, living organisms. Um, we have no experience uh, with artificial ecosystems. Uh, the Biosphere uh, 2 project uh, in uh, Arizona being the, the one uh, brief uh, exception. And it's striking that the space uh, cadets aren't really interested in uh, more research uh, in that area. It's not not a priority. We don't see uh, Musk and Bezos or the similarly inclined. Just for uh, the listeners about, at home, uh, just for the listeners at home, when you say space cadets, <laughs> you're, you're referring to a certain ideological class. <laughs> that's right. I, yeah. I, this, is, this is a term they <laughs> use to describe themselves. Okay. This is uh, the people who are, uh, advocates of the Silokovskian uh, right. habitat uh, space expansionism. Right, right. Uh, and th there, th there's a kind of engineer's view of life, which is, well, we'll just engineer it. Uh, and that's something that might actually be a major uh, feasibility impediment. You know, we talk about settling Mars, uh, and um, we have no idea what that environment with regard to the gravity and the radiation uh, would do uh, to uh, human uh, bodies uh, over time. Can sexual reproduction, can child growth occur uh, in uh, low gravity environments? We have no idea. We have no idea. Uh, so that that's the one, for me, the biggest red flag and the feasibility uh, side of it. But what I do is say, let's assume that it's going to become feasible, and let's think about desirability. Okay. Let's be more critical about that. Um, 
And then you mentioned uh, the the nearer Earth, and let me focus on that now. Uh, yes, just that is, just uh, that sort of tension between because it's a very interesting discussion that comes at the end of the book between this kind of uh, uh, sort of um, that 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 we that we seem to sort of not be able to evolve the correct political institutions that would be needed to implement some of these fearful scenarios. Um, so in a, in a sense, our our in our political incapacity. I, maybe I'm reading you wrong, but you know, it's like you're almost saying our political incapacity is a saving grace because, so far at least, that that potential uh, space expansionist future is forestalled. Uh, yeah, that is a, a a strand of the argument. Um, one of the interesting features of the space literature, the space advocacy literature, is the extent to which they pitch their space projects as solutions to Earth problems. We're running out of resources, we're running out of energy, uh, so let's build you know, stuff in space. The Earth is vulnerable in various ways, all of our eggs are in one basket, so let's diversify our habitat. So there, there's a quite interesting uh, conversation here that's uh, kind of one-sided, but between uh, characterizations of Earth problems and the logic and appeal of these space uh, solutions. And much of the book is actually focusing on that set of questions. And I mentioned earlier this typology issue uh, and the Silokoskian uh, uh, paradigm, a ladder of steps, but there are two other programs that have actually had much more extensive realization. Uh, this is a book not only about the future, it's also an assessment of what has happened to date. And of course, the main view of the space people is that it's all been good, there just hasn't been enough of it. But what I do is to say that actually there has been what I call the great debate in space, the first great debate in space, uh, which pits two very different programs uh, against one another. On the one hand, there's what I call the Von Braun program, which is a ladder, again, and it is focused on military capabilities, the extension of nation-state military rivalry uh, into uh, the astrosphere, ballistic missiles, uh, satellite force multipliers, anti-satellite weapons, ballistic missile uh, defense systems, uh, a big ladder. And that has been in uh, clashed with something that is not fully recognized as such, particularly by the space people, which I call the Clark Sagan uh, paradigm or program. And it is centered on uh, arms control is the negation of the Von Braun program. It wants to dismantle and forbid and uh, then to use space to protect uh, the planet and to build a common uh, identity and community on the Earth. And so basically these two uh, programs have been in uh, running clash with each other uh, across uh, the actual space age. Far more of their proposals have been implemented than what the Silokovskians want. The Silokovskian agenda is essentially 
uh, visionary still. Actual space activity is in the von Braunian or Clark Sagan uh, approaches. Now, as I mentioned, one of the ace in the hole arguments that the advocates have is that, oh, we might have a nuclear war or climate change or uh, the planet might become uninhabitable and therefore we need to get uh, our species eggs in other baskets. Our frail, fragile basket of the earth justifies uh, efforts to go into space. And I say, well, wait a minute. Let's actually look at what space has wrought so far. It's a very diverse set of activities. But what is not recognized by the space literature is that ballistic missiles are inherently space weapons. There's this very peculiar uh, sort of category move that they make. Everyone knows that the rockets capable of lofting objects and humans into orbit were developed not for the purposes of exploring space, but for the purpose of lobbying hydrogen bombs at distance, starting with the V-2 and then the American and Soviet ICBM programs in the 1950s. And the first object fabricated by humanity to go beyond the Earth's atmosphere was not the Sputnik Soviet satellite in 1957. It was a German V-2 rocket. And the Germans, when they were doing this, uh, were cognizant that the beginning of the space age, 1942, we have used space as a bridge between two points on Earth. And I argue that ballistic missiles are inherently space weapons because they do what they distinctively do as weapons, which is to go very fast, because they exploit a unique feature of the space environment, which is the near vacuum. And so this is our largest, depending on how you count, space program. It's a ballistic missile uh, uh, delivery system for nuclear weapons. Now I say, well, what do we think about space, what it's wrought, you know, a ledger sheet, positive and negative, when we put the ballistic missile as space weapon into the uh, ledger sheet? People can disagree about this. We haven't had a nuclear war. Why? Who can say? It was the Cuban Missile Crisis, after all. And there's, it's clearly the case that ballistic missile co uh, coupling with uh, thermonuclear weapons makes nuclear war vastly more rapid than it otherwise might have been. And of course, a whole line of arms control thinking from the beginning has been, this is too fast. We don't want to do this. The point of arms control is to lengthen the fuse. And so the Clark Sagan program, as I construct it, is an arms control. Its ladder starts with arms control. And the single most important thing that we could do to improve space's contribution to the human prospect for survival 
is to dismantle the ballistic missiles that are coupled to the uh, nuclear weapons. And so there's kind of an irony here because I'm saying that this space program, which people don't recognize as a space program, actually is arguably the most consequential space program because it has increased the probability of a nuclear war, which is, after all, the first and so far now only extant uh, technogenic threat to human survival. And so the irony is, is that the space people are always accused of inflating. Oh, space has done this, or oh, space will do that. In fact, they've done the opposite. They've dropped out what is their most consequential program. And of course, understandably, they'd want to do that because it's uh, negative. So the rest of the Clark Sagan program, you were alluding to this a minute ago uh, about consciousness. Basically, the Clark Sagan program, I argue, is better fitted to the material realities of what I refer to as planetary geopolitics, and that the problem isn't that we're stuck on Earth. The problem is that we are stuck in an archaic international order in combination with all of these global and planetary scale technologies. And so we should be judging space in terms of its contribution by the degree to which it can help close that gap. And, you know, cooperation in space, the International Space Station, uh, these are ancillary in terms of the overall state system. Uh, ballistic missile arms control, that would be very important. But the Clark Sagan uh, folks, this is Clark and Sagan and others. Uh, also argue uh, a kind of global village consciousness point, uh, which is that as humans understand that they're on this minuscule little speck of dust, which is highly vulnerable, and as they look at the see pictures of the Earth from space, the overview effect, a consciousness of uh, togetherness and planetary mutual vulnerability uh, will emerge. Uh, Clark and Marshall McLuhan, you know, tout the uh, communication satellites, the beginning of the uh, intensive uh, connectivity with regard to information flows uh, as leading, uh, in, they claim, to a convergence uh, with regard to consciousness uh, that would then be the foundation for actually making the institutional changes necessary to bring international order into alignment with the imperatives in this high technology era. Sadly, this has not happened, or at least it hasn't happened to a degree. Uh, and so, you know, we're stuck uh, on the one hand in this archaic system. Uh, we can't seem to generate a sufficient consciousness of uh, shared vulnerability, nuclear, ecological, vis-a-vis -vis space, uh, to, to generate identities that are strong enough to counteract uh, and to replace those of uh, the nation state. But that's been an ambition of the Clark Sagan uh, program uh, from the beginning. 
Well, uh, I've kept you for quite a while here, and I uh, appreciate very much your answer to that last question because I I think uh, it, it is probably one of the best parts of the book where you where you elaborate the need for that sort of middle option between the two fates, so to speak. Um, and uh, it will be very interesting to see what happens now. My own prejudices, I should say, um, I'm a bit of a Marxist and whatnot, so um, I, I, I have my sort of own ambitions for that third option, if you know what I mean, that, that, that middle option. And in that light, I suppose I wanted to conclude today with maybe a little bit of a challenge for you and see what you think. So <clears throat> uh, close to the end of chapter two, uh, you discuss the story of the first astronomer, the Greek philosopher Thales, who accidentally fell in a ditch while looking up at the stars. Now, you, you mentioned this character multiple times in the book, but for you, it's a kind of a cautionary tale, right? It's uh, it, it's it's sort of almost um, uh, a moment where you uh, sort of you know it's it's a warning for humanity that you know this this is this is what happens when you fetishize your technology and there's a there's a kind of a heideggerian voice that is in your work at that point in time i i feel maybe you can comment on that but one of the things i noticed is that elsewhere in the book you also kind of take a couple of swipes at Marxism and advocates in particular of what's known as fully automated luxury communism. I should mention that you're on a podcast right now called Fully Automated, which is uh, uh, named in, in no small measure after that ideological posture. So, um, But you lump these fully automated luxury communist uh, advocates in uh, with the techno boosterists of, of Silicon Valley. And I just kind of wanted to offer this observation. You know, to me, Falk, as it's known, fully automated luxury communism, the, the advocates of Falk aren't so much idealistic techno-instrumentalists as, as advocates of a theory of ultimately technological choice. I mean, for them, the point is not, at the end of the day, to champion a fully technological society with replicators everywhere and things like this that, that sort of do all the work for us. I mean, that that if you go down that road, you just end up with a world that looks like the children's movie WALL-E. Um, but rather instead, I think they want to advocate a political project that tries to bring people back to a passion for socialism and in so doing then overcome what they see as a problem within the left today, which is its tendency to sort of kneecap itself by by preaching austerity, anti-consumerism and whatnot. You know, so it, it doesn't really then have a good response to neoliberalism at the end of the day. So I know, look, it's, it's, it's not really the subject of your book, but I thought I'd just throw it out there because I guess you don't really discuss capital per se in the text as, as a variable shaping space expansionism. But how would you respond to people who would believe that that third option that we were just discussing in the last question uh, could be answered through old-fashioned Marxist instrumentalism? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I thought of it all myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, to start with... Um, your point about what I call Galician disorientations. Mm -hmm. um, Thales, this Greek, uh, we only have, you know, folkloric uh, knowledge of him really 
you know, a snippet here or there in Aristotle and, and subsequent writers. Uh, and there is this tale that he was focused on the stars uh, and thus fell into a ditch and then was laughed at uh, by a Thracian uh, peasant girl. Uh, and I, I think this is a very uh, interesting, um, you know, sort of voice of the earth speaking to uh, the space uh, minded um, that uh, we will lose our uh, proper footing uh, if we focus too much, you know, on the sky. And that, uh, unfortunately, the ditches that uh, we're likely to fall into now uh, are much uh, deeper uh, than he was confronted. Um, and I am not a Heideggerian. Um, I do talk about a spectrum of postures towards technology, again, in chapter two, um, a spectrum running from Promethean technophiles at one end uh, to uh, Luddite technophobes uh, at the other, and uh, then uh, Friends of the Earth and uh, techno-optimists. But in the middle is a position that I refer to as Soterian. Uh, this is a great word uh, coined by uh, the Australian uh, political uh, philosopher, environmental thinker, uh, Clive Hamilton, uh, drawn from the Greek uh, goddess of preservation and safety. And um, there's a spectrum, in other words. And Heidegger, I think, um, one never knows really what these opaque statements uh, fully mean. That might be part of the point. Uh, would be uh, in the close to the, to the Luddite uh, end of the spectrum with regard to technology. And the, I think the more reasonable position, the position that I am attracted to, is that middle position of the Soterians. And uh, the attitude of Soterians uh, towards technology is, well, it depends. Uh, it, there's not capital T technology for Soterians. There are technologies. And that uh, the project for the Soterians uh, is to build uh, foresight capacity, assessment uh, capacity, and steerage capacity. And uh, we, you think about you know, the number of things that could have gone wrong. Um, and sometimes have gone wrong, but we've had learning curves. Um, we haven't had a, that bad a record uh, with regard to technology. Obviously, climate change is, uh, and the commitment to fossil fuels is a, uh, a major case here. Um, but take the ozone layer. We had these exotic chemicals. We found out that this was happening, and we got rid of them. Um, and so, so Terrians are cautiously optimistic, but one has to acknowledge that the Soterian position uh, ultimately depends upon uh, the epistemology of foresight assessment and the underpinnings of steerage. And uh, the new earth science, I think, makes 
that much more problematic than we would have thought earlier. Uh, you know, this the notion of, of, of the Baconian project presupposed that nature uh, was fully intelligible to us, readily accessible. And we now understand that that may not be true in some very important ways. So the, the Soterian position is cautious for epistemological reasons to a significant degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, your excellent questions here about uh, socialism. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, Falk, uh, which I think is a fascinating <laughs> uh, you know, intellectual current, fully automated luxury capitalism. Um, <laughs> this is really, as I think its advocates say, is a return uh, to ideas in Marx. Yeah. Uh, and Marx was a Baconian. Marx was an Enlightenment guy. You know, he was basically saying that uh, this capitalism, you know, was a stage and we're going to go beyond it uh, and, you know, have progress and eventually have, you know, uh, communism. And uh, with regard to socialism and communism uh, on the space topic, um, this is actually something that is part of the conversation. Um, I talk about freedom, of course, and for me, uh, freedom is uh, uh, Western liberal democratic uh, liberalism in, a, in mm-hmm. its full form, mm-hmm. human rights and all that. And uh, there has been, uh, really from the very beginning, back in the 19th century and then developed in the Soviet Union, a very different vision of freedom, which looks to uh, the commune to the collective. Uh, J.D. Bernal, a a British Marxist, uh, very interesting guy, uh, 1928, wrote a little book in which he talks about this, that the appeal of space is that we can eventually have pure communism. And of course, this view interprets individuality as alienation from the collective, and that space colonies, uh, where the collective will be overwhelmingly dominant, is going to be the locus to achieve what has not been possible uh, on the Earth. So there is a uh, a, a contested uh, political imaginary here. Uh, with regard to uh, freedom, the individual, and the collective. And I might also note that the book engages another fascinating body of more recent literature developed by a group associated with the British uh, Interplanetary Society, BISA, uh, looking at uh, freedom uh, in space. They're talking about the Western version of freedom and uh, tyranny, despotism, and they come up with a whole list of what are, I think, compelling reasons to think that it will be very difficult to extend uh, and preserve uh, freedom in space. And this is something that the American wing of space expansionism uh, needs to pay more attention to, because there is, of course, this sort of libertarian ethos associated with the frontier. Uh, the whole part of the point of going into space is to escape government regulation, taxation, uh, that the planet is getting too crowded, 
uh, regulation and government is increasingly necessary at all scales, and, we, and they want to uh, go to the frontier to break out from that. But the reality, if the, if the Biza group is right, and I think there's strong reasons there, although it's, a, it's a, a complex topic that needs more thought, if they are right, and there are good reasons that they lay out, then space colonies are going to be micro-despotisms of one sort or another. And of course, the key problem is that in a space colony, everybody has to be uh, into the in, into the regime because if somebody uh, you know terrorist act uh, in a space colony is like a terrorist act on a ship, right? And we look at ships and the governance of ships, and they're not democracies. And people accept this because. They need technocratic navigation, propulsion, et cetera, uh, to avoid uh, catastrophic uh, destruction and the sinkage of the ship. And so to the extent that these colonies are ship-like, then we're talking about uh, a technocratic despotism Mm -hmm. within Mm -hmm. which individual freedom would basically be what you do in your cabin, you know, in your spare time. But we'll still be watching, and of course, we'll AI and so forth will be uh, capable of keeping surveillance. Sure. Uh, so the whole over the parts. If you're a communist in, in, in the full sense, yeah, then you might want to uh, promote space colonies. Uh, <laughs> you might want to go live on a space colony. Uh, if you are a liberal uh, who believes in individual uh, uh, rights and uh, limited government. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to do space. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to figure uh, where the uh, where the Bernie Sanders democratic socialism, uh, which I think is is really what fully automated luxury communism is trying to advocate. Actually, I think I think the I think it's a playful use of the word communism. I don't think it's a. I, I don't think it, it it means sort of Soviet collectivism or something like that. You know, I I, th- I think that's. In in the in the way that you're kind of committed to political liberalism, I think they probably would have some overlap with that. The question is, of course, how do you achieve that liberalism in the face of contemporary capitalistic um, domination, which is just, I think, so interesting. I'm I, I I guess we're at the end of the interview, so it's unfair of me to drop in a new point, but I mean, I I I presume you've seen the TV show Battlestar Galactica. Yes. Right. So obviously in there, there's that, a lot of that hydraulic despotism you're talking about, right? That's it's very technocratic. And uh, of course, we're in this little literal battle for our lives against the technologies that we've created kind of coming back to, to dominate us. These are these sort of cyborg figures made in our own image that are now seeking to kind of eliminate us. But um, it's interesting that once Battlestar, the show finished, they went back and made a attempted anyway to make a prequel series which didn't last very long but it was called caprica and it was of course before the cylons really became self-aware and took over uh the planet and and caused humanity to flee but um it's very interesting how they sort of set up the political economy of the world that created the ai it is very much a kind of a global globalized militaristic society 
Uh, and when I say militarism, militaristic, I mean, you know, it, it's it's run by, uh, you can very, very clearly see that, that the powers, the political powers at work on that planet are those of what we might call the military industrial complex. Um, but it is a, it is a, a, a very, it's a society that looks very much like our own social networking, large corporations, intrigue of all sorts to do with that. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in how that show Caprica kind of re-articulates the fatalism of the later show, chronologically speaking, Battlestar Galactica itself. You know, it, it's, it's no longer just man versus technology, but you get to see that man versus technology was born in a conversation of man versus capital. And uh, I think that's just kind of, that's just kind of one way I was thinking about your book, you know, like what, what is it, is it really, you know, that, that outer space needs to be so authoritarian, I think, is, as you would sort of say, um, or can it be that, uh, you know, if we, if we approach it with decency, democratic values, um, a redistributive mindset that maybe we can achieve something else? Well, um, I'm skeptical that we can, uh, achieve uh liberal democracy in space i think that mm -hmm. the, the lay of the land is going to be extremely inhospitable to to that uh project right that comes through very clearly in your book i think you you know in fairness to you yes yeah my, my more general politics are uh liberal democracy uh uh which you know has at various junctures done a good job of dealing with uh, inequality, uh, and we need to go back to that. Um, there's a whole part of my work is actually about the liberal international order, mm -hmm. uh, a, a term that John Eikenberry and I coined in 1999. Right. And uh, by that, we don't mean neoliberal. We mean FDR liberal. Right. <laughs> and uh, so for us, it's um, democratic capitalism. Okay. is what we really want. We want to democratize uh, capitalism mm -hmm. rather than replace capitalism with state uh, ownership of the means of production. Gotcha. Uh, oh, and, sure. and as sure. a Republican, sure. in, the, in the little r sense, concerned about uh, uh, oppressive state power, the uh, central problem with uh, the actually existing socialisms uh, is that the state power uh, becomes too great to check. And so private property uh, is uh, an important bulwark of uh, liberty uh, because it keeps uh, power from being uh, too centralized. So that would be my more general political orientation. Uh, but you point to the, um, you know, the changing technological environment and um, part of it is, of course, with regard to violence capability. I talked about nuclear weapons earlier, uh, this language of omniviolence, which is the idea that uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, violence capacity uh, is getting more uh, accessible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, we have weapons of mass destruction, terrorism scenarios uh, with nuclear material, uh, you know, my view, and I don't mean to be, you know, pessimistic about sure. this, it just seems a kind of no-brainer that it's just a matter of time until uh, we have uh, a terrorist use of a nuclear device. Uh, and, of course, biotechnology is 
uh, getting uh, much more capable. And so designer plagues uh, by apocalyptic groups or what have you is a very real possibility. And of course, if people have said this, but I think a truism, war is the health of the state. Uh, terrorism is the super health of the state. Wherever we've had uh, terrorism, uh, we've had you know a reaction of uh, greater state capacity. Uh, look at what happened uh, after 9/11 with the Patriot Act in the United States, and after a nuclear 9/11, uh, we're going to get the Patriot Act, you know, to the uh, third or fourth power. Uh, and the the fundamental fact is that as omniviolence spreads, as the accessibility of these capabilities uh, grows, we're going to have to have authoritative governance of these technologies on a global scale that's going to penetrate down to the social atomic level of the individual. Now, can we do that without structuring those authorities that penetrate down to the social atomic level of the individual in an oppressive and a hierarchical way? That's the design question. And this is why I go back to negarchy and back to uh, Republican architectures of restraint that have to be reconfigured in the face of new technologies. Uh, that's what, the, that's what the, the New Deal was. It was the Industrial Revolution is requiring a reconfiguration of the regime in order for the basic regime principles to be realized in this new material context. And so uh, back to the beginning, uh, it's uh, universal negarchy uh, or death or at least oppression. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's a sad note to, to, to wrap up on today, but uh, this is a great book. I really have to say I enjoyed reading it. I haven't enjoyed reading a, can I call it an IR book? I, mean, I hope you don't mind. Um, but I, I haven't enjoyed reading a book like that for, for quite some time. It, it's very much um, on my uh, sort of on my level. It, it, my DNA, this, this uh, book speaks to curiosities that are hardwired into me and who I am. So <laughs> very much. Well, that's great. It. I mean, I have the sense that there is a, a, a community of people, you yeah. know, a subset of IR and beyond uh, who are interested in these questions. And we, there's no one uh, disciplinary home uh, yeah. that, you know, it's a conversation that spills across the people in the natural sciences, humanities, social sciences, all uh, united uh, with this focus on uh, technological transformations and their broader political and social economic yeah. implications. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Uh, are you, you're getting good feedback on it anyway? I have been. Uh, I've been frustrated been that I haven't been able to go around and of course. you know give talks in big auditoriums. Right. Um, I. I I think it's objective to say that I'm a fairly talented, uh, you know, large lecture hall speaker. Uh, and, is, yes. Uh, so I was, you know, hoping to harness that, yeah. uh, you know, modest talent to uh, have <laughs> encounters. And so I, you know, my, my vision when I was writing this was, oh, I'm going to be at uh, uh, Comic-Con uh, you know, debating Elon Musk. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. A giant auditorium. And, and then COVID uh, hit. <laughs> so we'll see. 
You yeah. Know? Uh, and of course, the, this, the, book, the book came out on March 15th, which was like the beginning of the lockdown. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so everyone's interested in uh, the pandemic and race, obviously both very important questions. Uh, but, you know, the book is not really tied to any, I was very conscious of doing this, tied to any particular kind of immediate policy, you know, debate or, or issue cycle so that it uh, will hopefully have a shelf life. Um, yes, I believe so. At least long enough for me to go around and adequately promote it. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's hope we, we manage to contribute a little bit of, to, to that promotion uh, with this talk today. Thank you so much for coming on anyway. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch, yeah? Good, good. This has been terrific. Thank you. I enjoyed it so much. Fabulous questions. Really, really good questions. Oh, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. I enjoyed reading it. Very thoughtful. Really getting into it. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.